Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. My guest today is Errol Tveten, who has worked for the Norwegian Triathlon Federation since 2010, where he started out as a volunteer coach for two years before becoming the head coach and sports director. Errol spoke to us shortly after his athlete, Christian Blumenfeld, won the men's Olympic triathlon at the recent Tokyo Olympics. This is a fascinating conversation which dives into how Norway started its high-performance program in 2012 with the goal of winning Olympic gold and the training philosophy and methods behind their steady progression as they became the best in the world. I hope you enjoy the show and can learn a few things that can make you an even better athlete yourself. My guest today is Errol Tveten. Uh, Gosh, just amazing. I'm getting goosebumps interviewing you today. Um, You've come off just probably one of the highlight races of your coaching career, I assume, which is winning the gold medal in Tokyo with Christian Blumenfeld. Huge congratulations. Uh, That had to just feel so good for you. Uh, Thank you, Dirk. And uh, uh, really thank you. Thank you for, for having me uh, on the show. I'm looking forward to this uh, chat. And uh, yeah, I hope we can share some of the, the way we works and some of the, maybe some of the secrets. So yeah, it's been a long <laughs> journey. The, the last uh, 12 years, we've been working quite closely together. So yeah. Yeah, awesome. And and so where are you now? I mean, you you, you probably left Tokyo. Where where are you now? Uh, no, actually back home in Norway. Um, the old athletes were coming back to Norway after the Olympics. For some athletes, that was the first time in seven months that were in Norway. So, um, yeah. but I'm still in Norway. Um, and we have uh, Christian Brunfeldt, uh, the, the gold medalist. He's now in Edmonton, Canada for his final um, fi- grand final in the World Triathlon Series, and uh, we hope that he can win it. But um, he traveled alone this time, so this is uh, the first time for him alone at the World Championship, and the first time for me not being at the World Championship since I started working with him. So it's a little bit special. That's funny. The coach gets a little rust, but the athlete keeps going. Yeah, it's it's like that, and uh, but 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 this time it was um, a little bit about uh, the quarantine uh, restrictions, and um, right. it's a little bit uh, uh, quite expensive uh, travel. And I could go there for five days, and three of the days you need to stay in the hotel room uh, in the quarantine. And uh, when we are not able to be together, it's yeah, we didn't have so much time together, and. Uh, Right now, Christian is so experienced that uh, he knows what to do. So, Absolutely. I'd, I'd love to get into the, to the background and how you've been developing the Norwegian High Performance Program. You're the head coach. Uh, when did you start with uh, the Norwegian Federation as, as the head coach? Uh, I was officially employed in 2012, but, but I was um, in many ways volunteering in, back in 2010. Uh, so I got to, to know what 
at that time was a kind of a youth development team we had with some athletes. Um, and out of this group, uh, we had some talented guys, and especially from the beginning, Christian. And uh, the Federation asked me, because I was a little bit in doubt if I want to start coaching young athletes. And uh, but they said to me, "Can you just start working with Christian uh, in 2011 and to see if that works out okay? And after that, we can discuss if it's any future for you in the federation or or whatever." So so I, I was with the small team as a volunteer basis in 2010 and uh, started working just as the private coach for Christian in 2011 and in 2000. Well, I started officially with uh, also working with all the athletes and tried to build up a strong national team. Uh, yeah, that was the beginning. And, and what was your experience? Um, I know you raced, you know, previously to coaching the national team. Tell us more about your background in, in triathlon and racing. We, yes, um, I, I was uh, a little bit into the triathlon myself. I actually was uh, one of the earlier uh, pioneers in uh, back in Norway. I started doing triathlon in 1987. And I was oh, also wow. at the, the national team in the 90s. I did my first Ironman Hawaii in 97. But um, I, I was not at the, at the high level, I would say. I was on the national team, but we were not really good. But it was like uh, then I going into a career, having a full-time job, more did a little bit age group racing but at that time when it comes to around 2002 I, I started working for um, the heart rate uh, company polar electro um, okay. using the heart mo- rate monitors and then at that time i got really interested in in using uh, at that time heart rate to uh, to to, to see what you, how you train, the intensity control and everything. So I was working for them for 10 years and um, get a lot of experience on that. I was actually one of the guys who was a little bit part of the development team for the first multi-spot monitor, heart rate monitor that they get in the early 2000s. Um, right. and, and based on that experience, I started to do a little bit online coaching for age groupers, primarily people doing triathlon or Ironman, but also cross-country skiing, running, cycling, back in 2005. And, 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 and I actually learned a lot by doing that. So that was my background. But I didn't have any formal education at that time. But I spent my first years um, uh, working as a head coach to get the, my education uh, as a in the physical part and uh, as a coach. So um, have never ever coached young athletes. And Christian was sixteen when I started with him. So wow. that was very different, actually. Yeah. So then you take over the head coaching position in uh, two thousand and twelve. It sounds like. Did you, was there pressure from above to say, we need to win gold medals or was just all internal, you know, you bringing what, what we call, you know, in the United States, we say a BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal of winning gold medals. Um, where did that come from? Um, tell us about that, that sense of culture of being the world's best. 
Yeah. Um, okay. It was a two part. Uh, when I was, um, uh, it was not that I was taking over a role as a head coach because we had never ever had a head coach before. So this okay. was actually the first time that I tried to do something with the young athletes. And I actually got employed that the border of the Federation had made a strategic plan who said that we want to try to achieve a medal in the Olympics 2020. And back at that time, I thought, wow, this is crazy because we have no one. We have maybe <laughs> one junior who can race internationally at that time. And that was okay. Christian. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I like the goal because it, it, I think uh, if I, we hadn't succeeded, I think I probably would be staying in my position anyway. But when you have a goal like that, it means something that you need to try to do something extraordinary to try to be the best that coach you, you can be every day. And, and for me, that was a really internal uh, motivation to stop because that means that you you need to get serious in the process and you you want to try to do everything right. Um, and from my personal experience. I was, as I say, that I was on the national team as a young athlete, but uh, we were not very good. But at that time, we were ble- we were using a lot of excuses because we were not so good. We said we didn't have the money to travel to do the, the races and the training camp. It was too cold in Norway. So when I started my job, one thing I said that I will never, ever say that to my athletes, that you cannot do anything. Right. Because we put too much limit on ourselves back in the days when I was on the national team. Uh-huh. And I said, no way. So I say that when I started with the athletes, okay, our goal is to try to be the best in the world. I mean, we'll do whatever we can every day to see if we can achieve that goal. So how do you go about selection for this national team? You know, and what age are you looking at? Well, I guess if we go back in time at the very beginning, you said Christian was 16. So you are literally, was the entire team, you know, 15 to 17 year olds all focused towards 2020? In many, in one way, yes. But as I said that, when the, when we say the target 2020, we didn't actually know how we, the future will bring. And um, uh, for instance, uh, Gustav Eden, who was 18 in the Olympics, and also Lotte Miller, uh, racing the female race, 24, they were 14 at that time. Wow. Uh, and Lotte hasn't ever be, been doing a triathlon in her life, so she didn't actually knew uh, the disciplines in triathlon. Oh, she knew <laughs> the discipline, but it didn't she didn't know the distances and right. in, in, in which order to do a triathlon. So, so that come back to the kind of a, a selection process was at that time not so serious. It was like we just invited uh, good swimmers, which we knew who can run quite well. Um, and out of that, we get, uh, I think we've got 16 athletes on the first training camp. Okay. Yeah, and out of these 16, and, and that was literally more or less all athletes, young athletes in Norway doing triathlon. It, it was not wow. a selection of many thousand. It was oh, wow. what we had when we started. Right. Uh, out of this, we have uh, four racing in the Olympics and one is coach. So uh, we, we, don't, we didn't lose so many 
uh, in the process. So maybe we were lucky to find the right, the right atlas. <laughs> you had a twenty five percent success rate there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and I think that is quite extreme. <laughs> um, but but what we had was uh, motivated athletes. Uh, I will not say so talented. Uh, of course, they had the talent, but the, the biggest talent that had was the talent to do the training. And uh, I, I, I think that I think one of the success we had that when you have a bunch of athletes and you don't can choose from so many, you just need to work with the one you have and try to do the best as you can. And I know that if you have had the same athletes, if they've been growing up in US or in Australia, I think maybe one of them will, most of them will never be picked on a national team in other countries than in Norway. So I would say that to at the beginning, to be a part of the national team in Norway was very, very easy. But of course, uh, the standard at the end or the next year get, was getting higher and higher. But in the beginning, if you just were interested in doing triathlon, you were able to be on the team. And if you then show motivation and interest to do the training you needed to do, yeah, then you still will be on the team. Yeah, it, I love that. It sounds like you looked for what we call grit. You know, you look for people that have the work ethic. Yeah. And it is sometimes yeah. that trumps the, the talent. Yeah. In, from our opinion, that mostly trumps the talent. Uh, of course, if you are a kind of a power vital kind of muscular type, you will probably never be on the national team in triathlon. But, but when we first get them is about the, the grit, the, the motivation, and uh, the internal driving force they have to, to want to achieve the best potential. So, yeah. Right. But then you have this commitment back to them. You know, if they show that grit, what I what's so different culturally is, uh, you know, you developed a program where you're committed to an athlete for you know, that was eight years. It started in 2012 and the Olympics are 2020. Um, you developed this core group national team that you were able to oversee every single day for eight years. And this is a, a real commitment whereby we don't really have that, you know, like in the United States, we don't have a national team that just stays together for years on end and trains yeah. together with one focus. We tend to be more about you know, year to year individuals, they have the, their individual coaches. So it, it, it can be hard to coordinate that long term development, but you are truly looking at multi year progression, and giving the athletes this time to develop and build that confidence as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that is one of the big difference uh, in terms of what we have compared to other countries. And you can say in many ways we've been quite lucky that we have the, the position to do that. And I say that one good thing or maybe the bad thing that the only coach the athletes have had in their, their life is me. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, and uh, of course, it's, uh, it's been good days and bad days. But, but the thing is, when I started working with that, it's a really a fully commitment because you... Okay, I don't see them on everyday basis, but I, I, I'm in contact with them almost everyday basis. And um, 
you know, we have the training diary, we have the training peaks account, so we, we all can see what the athletes are doing from day to day. Uh, and, and and that commitment from our, our side, in the, the first year it was just me, it's been, of course, a big commitment, uh, but it has been very good because we have been able to keep the team together. So um, maybe we're a little bit lucky on that, but uh, I know all the work we have been through, and I know that you, if you can have, you have an idea of what kind of training the athletes need to develop, and you have been able to do that on, from Christian's side since 2011, that means uh, 10 years. Wow. So the DNA of Norwegian coaching is truly, you know, so, so young. Are you seeing growth of coaches and athletes and clubs in the past few years? Or do you now expect a big surge or, or both um, now that you've won gold? Uh, well, it started, uh, okay, um, the last five years we have other coaches on the team. So now it's not just me. Uh, and that is good, but and we but we now have starting to get a development program with a development team where we are putting a lot of attention to the, the coaches in in the club and uh, the new coaches and also of course younger athletes. So right now we have much more athletes than, than we had uh, ten years ago. But it's um, and we have more coaches and coaches who are willing to learn from what we do. So uh, now the situation is better, but it's still like we are very little country uh, in terms of triathlon. We are not. Uh, we have maybe one hundred young athletes doing triathlon in Norway. Huh. And will you expect to see a funding increase um, now that you've been successful? I, I hope so. Uh, if not, uh, we are not sure how we can finance the next uh, years. Uh, so, so, of course, we have uh, quite okay funding from the National Olympic Committee, but it's still not enough for how we want to develop the whole team the next year. So we are, we, we are in need for, for sponsorships too. So... Um, it's not like people think that in many countries in Europe that funding is really good, but um, in real life it's uh, quite bad. And we as a national team are struggling, but right. the, the best athletes as an individual, they're having really good sponsorships. Right. And is there a, a coach certification program established uh, within the federation? And how long has that been going on for, if so? Well, yeah, we started with that in back in 2016, so that is also okay. quite young. Um, but since the federation is so little, in the first three years, I was also in charge of that and oh. to be the head coach and the one who organized everything and also in charge of the, uh, the coaches' education. It was too a little bit too much to say that in right. that way. So, um, But now, the last two years, we have, um, other people working with that and no that is taking a, a good growing and developing quite well so um, super yeah in the next year we will see more so but but on the national team it, it is still mainly me uh, and we have a one uh, sports scientist with us but we also have 
one young athlete, uh, he was the young athlete on the national team, who started to, to be more into coaching. So that is also the way of the culture we have. We saw that he maybe didn't have the motivation to, to rise at, uh, and train to be at the best level, but we saw that he was really good in other skills. So we took in him as a assistant coach and uh, he is learning from us and uh, and he, he will probably in a few years time he will be a leading coach in in our program so yeah very good you mentioned sports scientists um in my research of you and your program and, and methodologies certainly you know it, it sounds like sports science it really is at the heart um it really drives so much of of your methodology can you talk to us about um, testing, what type of testing is going on or different times of the year that testing is going on? What, what are you looking for? Yes, um, that is, um, of course, really interesting. Um, I would say for, from the beginning, I was taking very scientific approach to the training to try to balance the training really well. Um, and Early from the first day, we start using heart rate monitors, and then you, of course, get the power meters, and then we start using like that. And then we establish um, uh, a, a testing culture where we're going to the lab quite often. And on that, we are using a sports scientist who is actually developed, uh, we have developed our own test uh, we are using on our athletes. That's, of course, to establish the the LT1, the aerobic threshold, LT2, the anaerobic threshold. We also looked at the data, the, the Velomax data, uh, of course, the VO2max. Uh, and um, we try to see that in the perspective and try to see how we need to work on the numbers to develop the atlas further. So um, that is uh, the thing we have been doing the last... Uh, the, the lab testing we have been doing since I started, but... Uh, this scientific approach where we are taking to a new level the last five or six years. And um, that is something that is working really well. And that has in many ways, uh, I would not say totally changed the training and training principles because the main principles in training are the same. But, but, but instead of having a kind of a normal microcyclist periodization during a year, we are more looking into the data of the test and and we said, that, okay, based on the test, you as an athlete in the next period of the time should work a little bit more on that and that and not that. Um, so so we, we have a kind of weight approach to training and what we should do in training, not based on normal periodization theory, but what we actually see on the lab test, what the athletes need to do to develop Wow. That, so, so it, it, you know, I've also heard it's more aerobic focused and not so speed focused, whereby you'd think, you know, Olympic distance triathlon, you know, is so much about speed. But tell us more about your thoughts around the aerobic conditioning versus this top end speed and how you build that over time. Um, for us, it's like uh, triathlon is for sure a, a aerobic sport. Uh, of course, you need speed, but if you simplify it very much, to run a 10k in at, um, 29 minutes, of course you need a speed. When you break it down to the speed, you need to run 100 meter at that pace. Everyone in the world can do it. The only reason they cannot do it in 100 
times in a row is because they don't right. have the endurance. <laughs> <laughs> Quite simplified, but uh, right, uh, yeah. But um, uh, so actually, that is one of the key things because when I started working with the young athletes, is very typically I uh, start to need to work to uh, develop the speed and the thing. But we were actually doing the opposite: big aerobic base, uh, working on the mm. threshold, try to see how we can increase the threshold in, in power or in, in pace on the running. Uh, and when we are matching VO2 max in the lab with our athletes now, we mostly see above 90. From, uh, at least two of the guys who are racing in the Olympics, we see the numbers above 90. And that mostly by doing aerobic work. And we find that the speed work you need to do on the top to, to, to win an Olympic gold, for instance, is not so much that you need maybe four or five weeks uh, leading up to race uh, doing right. that. And then you are ready to go, actually, more or less. Yeah, if your aerobic uh, threshold is a higher percentage of your anaerobic threshold, um, you can, you're more or less kind of saving that, you know, those, uh, those efforts for the end where you're actually going really, really deep. So, so is this, um, it sounds like, you know, it's more of a theory of polarized, you know, the, the 80, 20, Dr. Steven Seiler, is that kind of fitting into that kind of, um, beliefs and the polar, uh, polarized type of training? Uh, yes, I, I would say so in, in many ways. Uh, I would say that we are using a, a kind of a polarized model, but it's more up to 90, 20, 10, I would mm. say. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, but but, yeah. Uh, but but that is because we're doing quite high volume, um, and uh, we we see that the intensity we we can do when the volume is too high is not so high. Right. Uh, but, but 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 of course, in uh, in kilometer, uh, how should I say it? Pace. Uh, yeah. yeah. In the the pace and also the power, uh, the no, the numbers of hours of uh, high. Uh, not high, but intensity around threshold is quite high anyway. So, so, so I say that is a little bit modified version of the uh, yeah, polarized training model. And uh, yeah, of course, uh, Steven Seiler is well known for that. And that is more or less based on, on research on uh, Norwegian cross country skills and a lot of what is doing in Norway. So, right. um, uh, and, but it's, it's a little bit modified and, uh, I'm looking forward to sit down with Stephen and discuss it further with him because uh, we do it a little bit different, but uh, he knows what, what we do more or less. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And so you mentioned you do a lot of threshold work. Are you testing in the lab giving and then giving workouts based on the lab data? And so the athlete only goes out having a, a, a pace or wattage target or are you also sometimes also taking lactate in the field during the workout? Yeah, uh, that is um, a good question. Of course, uh, we start, let's say, when we go to uh, the big altitude camps, we have two or three times a year. Before we do that, we go to the lab and we uh, establish the aerobic threshold in pace and power. But when we are going out in the field, doing the session that we I decided we should do, uh, we always do lactate testing. Uh, and it's very typical that 
many want to reach the target at the threshold in the beginning, and then they may be going too too hard. So, or athletes are learning to maybe start a little bit easier, and then we uh, doing some field testing. A quite typical uh, session we could have uh, on the bike, let's say six, seven times ten minutes at threshold, mm-hmm. and and then mm-hmm. uh, we do maybe on the first one we do a lactate, and we see that okay, are they within the range that we find acceptable? Mm-hmm. Uh, if not, they could uh, maybe increase the pace. If we are already at the first one, that they need to decrease the pace because they started out too hard, then more or less it's difficult to to get a full benefit of that workout. So I would say that when our athletes are doing this kind of workout, they're never going too hard in the beginning. It's maybe they need one or two to 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 hit the target. And then I see, okay, on last one I did 355 watts, uh, then I do that on the next one. And when we then see that at the third one, okay, then you're right on the power target, you are right on the lactate, then you just go. Just right. keep the same pace. Right. And it's not often they go too hard. It's very seldom they are they are not able to do that. But I see if we have foreign athletes training with us, they, they do it wrong 90% of the time. They start out too hard, so right. they blow up. Or maybe they are able to keep the pace, but the leg that is skyrocket high compared to what it should be. Uh, also, the easy sessions. Uh, also, if you right. want to go for an aerobic uh, threshold session, there's no way that our athletes are going 1.3, 1.4, 1.5 in that They are 0.7, 0.8, or, or more or less in that area. Right. But many athletes will go just a little bit too hard on that one. And that uh, they have an effect on the hard session. Exactly. I mean, I think such, that's such a good um, piece of advice to walk away from this interview with is certainly way too many athletes start out way too hard in, the, in their efforts. And so I think of it as, I think it's more important to have the time in the zone than it is to have less time, but a higher intensity. Yeah. For us, it's like that. So, so our session is, as I said, that a, quite a typical threshold session on the bike should be a 60 to 70 minutes. On the run, it could be 10, 12 to 14, 15 K of, uh, of running. Uh-huh. And then you need to be on the right intensity all the time. If you do it on the right intensity, you have a really good uh, work session. And um, yeah. Yeah, the time in that zone. So if you're doing six times 10 at threshold on the bike, are you doing two or three minute recoveries? Uh, I say partly as a joke and partly serious. We don't do rest. Uh, that means that uh, I don't <laughs> like resting. So we, if you do 10 minutes, we normally do one minute rest. Okay. If you are, let's say we do four times 15, I, I could give them uh, two minutes. Uh, so So normally in the... Most of the time, the resting period is a little less possible, uh, maximum up to, to one minute. But of course, when you're getting closer to, to, to racing time, if you increase the rest, you can also increase the pace and stay within, within the same intensity, increase the pace a little bit. So right. we, we can mix that when we are coming to, to the period when we're preparing for the races. But most of the year, 
we have short rest. And we do that kind of session all year round. It's not that we are starting with the easy aerobic stuff in the beginning. Okay, all is aerobic, but when we start in, after the off-season, we're starting doing intervals, maybe not the first week, but on the second week, we're starting doing intervals, but just up the threshold. Yeah. Um, so going back to altitude, I think you mentioned you do three or four altitude training camps a year. Um, yeah. In the early years, you know, going to altitude, I mean, I assume you've sort of figured things out now, but what were lessons learned? You know, what's the variation between athletes in terms of adaptation? Is there a large variation? Um, what, how, do you, how do you track that? What are you looking for? Yeah, uh, uh, that is a good question. And um, we, we have been doing altitude training since 2014. And we have more or less spent, let's see, 70 to 100 days at altitude each year. Wow, yeah. So that's quite a long and uh, and it's been a lot of talking about altitude training is not for everyone because you have a lot of uh, some non-responders or whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. We say that everyone responds really well to altitude training if you do the training correct. Then you mm-hmm. then you come back to intensity control because mm-hmm. if you then going too hard, that then, then your body is too tired. Uh, and you are not uh, recovering well, and the body, of course, has no time or uh, energy to start uh, producing more hemoglobin. So, so one of the reasons you go to altitude is to have an increase of hemoglobin mass, and to do that, you need to balance your training. And there to be aerobic in most all of your training is really important. And But what we see uh, is that is everyone have really good benefit of doing altitude training, but how they need to adjust the pace or power output is really, really individual. Uh, We have some athletes who really responding well to altitude, but they need to to be at the right intensity in terms of like that. They need to run or bike much lower than they think they need to do. And, and they sometimes find that kind of training very frustrating because the pace they're doing is much lower than they do at sea level. But, right. but, yeah. Uh, and that is hard for some people to understand and accept. Yes, I, I definitely see that in the, in the American culture. When you think squads and teams, the reason people think that's a benefit is like, oh, we're pushing each other, which can have benefit. But maybe the majority of the time it might be super for the top athlete, but for the other eight athletes, it's just way over the top. Um, So that education is a big, big part of of your coaching, it sounds like, you know, teaching the athletes the why behind the intensity. But then with the younger athletes that come in that don't have that mindset yet, are you, you know, how do you instill that in them? Um, are, are you, I don't want to say punish, but when you see them go too hard after the fact and you review a training peaks file, are you, you know, is that a teaching moment, I take it? Yes, um, I think that is the thing that um, I try to learn them from the beginning. But as you said, it's the kind of the education part. Uh, in the beginning is a little bit more to the younger athletes, you can just give them the pace or the power. Stay within that. 
no way uh-huh. you go uh, above because on the youngest athletes we probably we uh, we don't use like that so much so so, so now, right. then i use my experience to say dictate the pace and if they don't do it and i see uh, on the the file that they, they're going too hard i will tell them and they need to slow down next time um but over time of course uh, the athletes learn that and then they're starting using lactate themselves and then they start to understand it and one of the things we do when we're on training camp, uh, a quite typical scenario that the sports scientist is sitting down with some of our best athletes and and go through a specific topic in the endurance training in how you should mm. do it. It could be threshold, it could be talking about the Vela Mach system or energy system and and then they make a PowerPoint presentation. And then the athletes go and tell the other on the team about what he has learned today, oh. also to the younger athletes. So the ed- education part is uh, quite important. And what you see with older athletes, when you are not having a dictating way of coaching them, but you are having discussion with them, you're learning how they react on training, you're doing the tests you do and you involve them in the training discussion, then you see that the way you coach, uh, let's say, Christian today is totally different from what we did when he was 16. Uh, because no, he actually know what he needs to do because a little bit that he has learned it from us, but also because he's so interested in it because he wants to be the best. So right. he wants to see, okay, is Ari doing something wrong now? Is Ari doing everything correct? And then he he, uh, he asked me question, and then we have a really good discussion about his training to try to optimize it. And and that is uh, the part of uh, the learning process. And also for me as a coach, you always learn, and you can never stand still. It's always an, an evolution, or to be better the next year. <laughs> Uh, that's why we have you on the podcast right now for all of our coaches to learn something from. <laughs> yeah. Very, very good. You, you know, and we have to wrap up with Christian. I mean, he just an outstanding performance. Did it go as planned, the Olympic gold medal? I, I would say so. Uh, it was, uh, it's very easy to say that we had planned that in many years, but of course, Every athlete in the field were training for that race. And uh, the training, the whole training this year leading up to that race has been more or less really good. There have been no injuries, no distractions. Uh, the good things about not being home in Norway uh, is that we're having really good condition for training all year round. So, uh, and, and not so much disturbance. And when we are coming into the Tokyo after we have been on the pre-camp and all the other camps, um, we as the coaches were very sure that we have done all we could to get the athletes ready. So when we're coming into the Olympic Village, it's more or less okay. The next days, you just, we know you're ready. Next days, you just do the training you know you need to do to be ready for race day. We will just stop you if you're doing overdoing it and doing too hard session, unless right. you can decide yourself. So, of course, uh, so in many ways, we were quite sure leading up the race that we couldn't have done anything better. 
But of course, <laughs> when you come to the race day, you are very nervous because it's a lot of things that can go wrong. But um, it, it's something to say that instead of focusing too much on what could go wrong, uh, start focusing on what you can do something with. And it was just that uh, he, he missed... Uh, and spend a lot of time with the, the planning and execution of his race. Uh, he knows his strengths. He knows his uh, limit. And uh, based on that, I, I would say that he executed a really good race. So it went according to plan. <laughs> yes. And, and you had some other plans for other athletes as well. I mean, certainly Casper Storns and Gustav Aydin, you know, in the test event in 2019 were what were they second and fourth, fourth overall yeah yeah and 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 so you had a depth within within your team as well and confidence um how about the the heat i mean everybody was talking about the heat and it may not have been such a such a factor in the end but it sounds like you were very confident with your acclimatization yeah um people say it's quite strange that uh, people from norway uh were so well acclimatized and uh, <laughs> knew how to be a train in the heat. But um, we, we knew quite well what we needed to do. So we started out in 2018 with some, uh, we did some heat training in Thailand. We were testing out some uh, uh, heat protocols, how we could train in, in the heat, uh, what we should prepare for. And when we did the race in 2019, the test event, we actually saw that uh, we had very good control on it. Um, we, we have uh, done a lot of testing with Atlas. Um, in the test event, everyone was using um, uh, the core temperature pills so we can measure the core temperature after the mm. race. So we actually right. could see all the data wow. uh, how the core temperature was rising and uh, how it was for Atlas. Um, at that time, at that race, Christian didn't finish because he had a crash. But we knew that since he was actually winning the grand final two weeks later, that he actually was in really good shape. And leading up to the test event, he was uh, in better shape and a better athlete than both Casper uh, and Gustav. So we thought it was quite likely that he actually had won. So that say that what we have done up to 2019 was really good and we thought that we had an advantage as most of our competitors but but then uh, the olympic got po postponed and then people actually having two seasons to prepare for the, the olympic this year so we saw that maybe some of the other national team was discover some of the i would say secret that we found out about heat training heat acclimatization so so we tried to dig a little bit further and try to learn something new and take the heat training, step it up a little bit and to see if it could be at better than it was the year, year before. And um, yeah, I, I would say that we know how we should prepare in the heat and uh, we did it very well now. Um, the athletes had no problem in the heat. Uh, and in the end, we actually saw that uh, the temperature on racing day was not too high, but you still saw that some athletes from some country had trouble in the heat, especially in the last 5K of the run. So mm -hmm. it, uh, some of the, the people we normally see up front were actually fading quite much in the end. So, um, yeah. So yeah. it was a and, trouble and for someone. Yeah. 
Wow. Such an amazing athlete. Congratulations on your program. Um, just so awesome to review the last 10 years or so and how it's developed. You're, and yet it's not over. You know, here we are looking at Ironman, et cetera. So um, thank you so much for your time. All the, all the wonderful, um, you know, just tips and ideas and wisdom that you, you um, expressed here today. I appreciate the time um, talking to us. Oh, uh, you're welcome. It was uh, nice talking to you and really happy to be on your show. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it was a pleasure. And uh, I always like to talk about how we have done it. And uh, it's, it's no <laughs> secret in, in our training. So we are happy to share it with everyone. Very cool. Thank you so much. And uh, good luck with the races coming up. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com slash podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. <laughs>